Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Sarah Raitkin. Sarah is the Chief Happiness Officer at a global corporation utilizing novel methods to tackle organizational inflammation. A radical positivity activity, she's also the owner of Happiness is Courage Incorporated, sharing her message of hope, happiness and gratitude as avenues to greater personal and professional resilience and well-being. She has spoken at conferences across North America, facilitated numerous workshops on workplace excellence and worked with groups from one to 200 plus individuals to discover and embrace their personal strengths, ambitions and relationship goals. Employee satisfaction and well-being has a real business impact and Sarah's work focuses on increasing those metrics, leading simultaneously to greater profitability and happiness in the workplace. In this conversation, we explore the idea of organizational inflammation further and how exactly it can have an impact on a business. We also dig into why the idea of work-life balance is a myth and we explore strategies for fostering greater happiness in the workplace. Sarah's diverse experiences in various fields give her a unique insight into the field of positive psychology, an area of expertise that is more important now than ever before. There are some practical tips in this conversation as well that you can easily apply to your life. So grab a pen and paper and enjoy it. Good morning, Sarah. Hello, Ben. How are you this morning? Fabulous. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Fantastic. So um, just before um, we started recording, there was one term that you used to describe effectively what it is that you are treating as it were and that was what was that organizational inflammation so So, organizational inflammation is the paradigm through which we can look at the structure of an organization whether it be a company or a nonprofit or even a volunteer organization that just sort of hangs out and does good work and much like a, a biological organism has distinct subcategories of workflow, like digestive tract or respiratory tract that has a specialized system and yet is interlinked. Companies are the same, right? Companies have a finance department, an HR division, a logistics angle, and they also have very specialized processes and mission statements, but they depend upon each other to do their jobs. And so much like in your intestinal tract, if you have inflammation, you get massive inefficiency. Well, companies are very much the same way. So if you have a problem in your finance department, it's going to influence the ability of the people in that department to do their jobs. They'll waste a ton of time and energy doing unrelated non-value add activities, but it also tends to affect other parts of the organization as well. So this inflammation can absolutely become systemic and really cause significant damage to your organization's functionality and bottom line. Fantastic. So, and this, this term, this is in the, the, con- the broader context of what you're doing. Um, and what is that? What is your kind of raison d'etre? 
So my my official title is Chief Happiness Officer, and uh, people think that's not a real job, but it is. And what that really focuses on is finding ways to address those points of inflammation, usually around employee engagement topics, and find the root cause of them and find solutions that are functional and cost-effective for organizations. Fantastic. And what are some of the more common problems that you tend to see? Um, Because employee engagement is one of those terms that you see... (laughs) being quite common, especially at the moment, as many people are going to be working from home. How is, what, what are some of the things that people tend to struggle with? So what I see typically when it comes to employee engagement and the challenges that people face, it really tends to boil down to one of two categories. One is they do not feel that what they do adds value or that it's not being appreciated appropriately by their supervisors or their organization. So they don't see results from the effort that they're putting in. Uh, the other problem is that people tend to be actually distanced, uh, not, not socially isolated, but actually literally distanced from the people that they work with. Uh, they don't have those connections those relationships that allow them to build the resilience and the engagement they need to do their jobs. So finding ways to support both of those thrusts is very valuable for these organizations. And it tends to lead to much improved productivity, less turnover, all of the standard metrics that companies track when they think about engagement. But when they they do things like they put in a new gym facility or they provide free meals and they're just not seeing the results that they want Mm -hmm. because they're barking up the wrong tree. Okay. And so, so two things there that you mentioned, one of them was engagement. The other one was connection. Um, in terms of managing, not necessarily managing, increasing both of those things in an organization, but then also on a more individual level, what steps can be taken? So obviously, this is a particular problem for organizations that are dealing with what we are predominantly dealing with right now, right? Many companies have gone to situations where they have remote employees, uh, not just right now, but traditionally, we're moving to more of a model of people working from the home. And so you have to actually create that space because you don't have the organic intersections of people crossing in the hallway or having random lunch or breakfast together. You don't have those experiences. You have to act with intention to create those opportunities for people to have those connections and develop those relationships, which move beyond your program. I'm an analyst. How do our jobs intersect? That's important, but it's much more important to understand, hi, you're Ben, I'm Sarah. Who are we as humans and how do those connections make, make um, how do those come into play and enhance our experience and our sense of well-being in the workplace? Because we do, we are more, we are more than just one aspect of our, of our role or our, you know, whether I'm a mom or I'm an employee or I'm a whatever, we are, there's more to us than that. And so having an opportunity to bring more of that into play tends to create better outcomes for people when it comes to their well-being and their engagement. Okay. So if, um, if I was an employer and I was looking to help my employees kind of generate these, these opportunities, if they are working from home, what would be something that I could do? And then on an employee level, what something that I could do. Obviously, as you said, social distancing at the moment, maybe not right now, but at some point in the future. Well, you know, I think actually, I believe that this environment that we find ourselves in has forced this question to the forefront. And it's kind of, uh, it's a positive experience out of a negative uh, situation, right? So obviously this is not a best case scenario, but people are doing things like hosting Zoom happy hours for their teams, where the intention is literally just 
to check in on their well-being, their families, their pets, whatever, beyond the are your five top five tasks on your to-do list accomplished? What are your deliverables? That's that's set aside for a different conversation. Mm-hmm. So it is creating those spaces for those connections. And we've done that pretty successfully. Uh, you can either have live meetings like we're doing right now. You can have the Zoom chats or uh, Skype meetings or whatever technology your organization has in-house. But you can also do things like have virtual bulletin boards where people can share pictures of their pets or highlights of their weekends. Uh, we oftentimes see things like family milestones celebrated in the workplace. You know, somebody got engaged or they had a child or anything that contributes to a greater understanding of that person as a person and really allowing that time and space. And really in today's world, it's not so much a matter of a cork board in some break room because that's not how we do things, mm-hmm. but you can create a sort of a Facebook or social media type experience on the intranet of your organization. Many companies are using technology like Microsoft Teams, for example, and there are other tools out there where you can really just set aside some virtual landscape to allow those interactions to happen. It doesn't cost you anything as a company, but the benefits you're going to reap from that are going to be astronomical, honestly. Mm -hmm. So there are um, a few terms that you mentioned throughout there. So a lot of your work um, is feeding into the the science of happiness, not just on a corporate level, but on more of a like how what what is happiness? Is it just a feeling, or is it something? Well, how would you describe it? So my personal perspective on happiness is that happiness is a gauge. Uh, uh, there are some different theories around this, but I believe that happiness is the tool we use to measure how well our current situation aligns with something important in our in our world. So that might be our personal values. It might be our personal or professional goals. It might be the priorities we've set for ourselves. Uh, it could be cultural expectations, but some, something about the life you're living and the expectations that you have taken on uh, intentionally or otherwise, and that's important, uh, that, that friction that happens when you're out of alignment, that is unhappiness. And so you can find that space. Now, there is a tendency to believe that there is such a thing as like happily ever after, and that's obviously false. We all know that happiness, any emotional state, honestly, is fluid and transient. You will experience it, and then something will happen, and you will experience something else. And we also know that the, the current psychology supports the, the understanding that about 40% of our emotional experience is under our control. So it's actually quite quite large. I mean, that's a quite significant impact that we can have over our experience of the world. And it behooves us to take, to take action on what we can control in our environment. Nice. So one thing you said there, the intentions you have taken on, what do you mean by that? So what we see happen, and I see this with uh, some coaching clients that I see oftentimes, is they have taken on expectations and not even realized it. Mm-hmm. So this happens a lot of times when you are raised up in a particular environment. Um, could be religious, could be cultural, could be regional. You know, there are uh, very distinct expectations of people's behavior, and they they just absorb them almost. Um, by like emotional osmosis as they're mm-hmm. as they're maturing, we also have inputs coming into us. Obviously, social media is a huge impact on our world, and people choose to embrace um, 
some of that in different degrees. And then we internalize those expectations. And so if I say I am unhappy because I don't have that cool handbag or I don't have that awesome house or whatever it is. Um, and obviously there's an entire, uh, there's an entire marketing a segment based on encouraging that discomfort. So you'll go out and purchase things to fill that void. And I'm not going to say that nobody should do that. Um, but perhaps if that's the only way you can find fulfillment, you might want to have a chat with yourself, but we can be intentional about the inputs that we allow access into our brain. So you can choose the people you socialize with. Now you have less control maybe in the workplace, but you for sure can manage your social connections pretty well, typically. Um, you can also manage the, the choice of media that you consume, whether it's um, which news channel you listen to, what social media streams you follow, what books you read, what music you listen to, even what television shows. Uh, I know some people who are currently locked into their news broadcast. And of course, right now, the news is pretty depressing. Yeah. And that's reasonable. And there is a lot of bad stuff happening. Now, the truth is there's always a lot of bad stuff happening. But if all you see is this constant reel of hyper sensationalized negativity, your brain is going to go into high alert mode. You're going to be incredibly stressed out. Um, there's a term called amygdala hijack that uh, Goldman wrote about in his book, Emotional Intelligence, where your, your amygdala actually gets almost like hypersensitized. And so something like your Facebook notification goes off and you, your body reacts as though it's an announcement of like a natural disaster when it's really just your mom liking your post, but your brain has been trained to react in this incredibly intense fashion. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it, it, you can survive that, but it's not a great way to live your life. No, I mean, this, we live in a, a society in a world at the moment where thanks to social media and the internet, there is no longer this kind of break in the news cycle. It's <laughs> 24 hours, seven days a week. And as you say, like if, if you are consuming the wrong kind of diet, like the wrong kind of information diet, for example, if you're reading sensationalized posts and everything, then perpetual exposure to overly negative stimuli, then yes, of course. I mean, that makes perfect sense that you're going to be left in a, in a slightly fried out state. <laughs> Absolutely. Or I, I know somebody who um, only watches um, like police docudramas about <sighs> terrible crimes and they watch this like 12 or 14 hours a day. And so wow. that to them, their entire world is this fear based experience because they have allowed their brain to believe that that's normal, right? Mm -hmm. That's a normal thing to expect. And yes, of course, all of those crimes are based on true stories. Those things do happen, but perhaps not to everybody and perhaps not all the time. So one way we as individuals can help control that is just to be intentional and mindful when we realize we find ourselves in that hyper-stressed situation, pause and look around and see what are those inputs that we're allowing to bombard us? And can we filter any of that out in some way? Or if we can't, because maybe we, maybe we can't, uh, maybe we live with somebody who's listening to that on the news all the time. So can we do other things to offset it? And we know that our brain is wired to seek out danger. That's why we survived as a species. And that's a good thing. Um, but we have to work a little harder to find the positive, right? So our, we don't, 
we don't respond as robustly to positive stimulus. We go, oh, a birthday party, that's great. Oh, but I didn't get the shoes I want. And then we'll dwell on that for sometimes years, right? <laughs> so we have to be really intentional to almost like overload our plate with, with more positive activity, thoughts, processes, rituals, whatever is whatever works in your paradigm. And everybody is different. So you have to find that algorithm of happiness that works for you. But there is one out there. Mm-hmm. So this, this notion of kind of intentionality is one that seems to keep coming up um, in terms of being intentional in terms of the, the media that you're consuming, in terms of the people that you surround yourself with. If, if someone is listening to this and they find that they're kind of being buffeted left and right, they're, they're, they're kind of drifting through their life without this sense of intentionality, what would be um, a good first step that someone could take to starting to get more of a handle on what they are allowing into their life and subsequently into their brain? I think a good first step would be to actually stop and take stock of what it is that they're that they're experiencing. So how much television are you watching? What kind of television are you watching? What music are you listening to? And what is the message of that music? Um, what movies do you tend to gravitate to? What people do you talk to? And look at the top five or 10 people that you tend to associate with and really kind of think about their approach to the world. Are they upbeat, optimistic people or are they those sort of negative energy vampires for whom the world is always a dark and dismal place? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so as, and literally like write these things down, don't just think about them, but write them down and start looking for trends. You can almost see those trends emerging and you can tell how the impact is on your world. Um, some people will do this in a journal format so they can kind of see that ebb and flow of energy. So like today I felt fabulous and here's who I hung out with and what I did. Interesting. Yesterday I felt terrible and I watched this scary movie and I read a terrible news story. You know, you can, you can see the impact of the experiences that you have and you can't control everything. Obviously that's, that's unrealistic, but to be aware of it is, is really almost more important than being able to control it. Because if you, if you know it's happening, then you can choose how to counteract it. You know, if I see on the road ahead of me that there is no way to avoid that huge pothole and I know I'm going to get a flat tire. Okay. I can prepare for that Mm -hmm. as opposed to humming along kind of oblivious to what's happening and then pam, there's, there's the thing. And it's a lot, that's an extra layer of stress that you don't have to internalize. Okay. So this sounds as though it feeds quite nicely into mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, I think mindfulness is one of the most powerful tools that humans actually have, right? I'm so grateful for the crinkly part of our brain that allows us to have this ability. And mindfulness takes a lot of different angles. Many people think of mindfulness and they say, I hate meditation. <laughs> And what they, because their only exposure to that has been sort of the somebody sitting on a low cushion in silence for half an hour or something and doing nothing, or that's what it looks like. And that, that is a type of mindfulness and that can be a very powerful practice if it works for you, but it doesn't work for everybody and that's okay. But I mean, there are things like square breathing exercises where you just watch yourself breathe, you know, in even... Uh, cadence. You can do intentional 
eating, where you uh, you uh, savor a raisin and you very mindfully appreciate everything about that bite of food. You can do guided meditations. I find these are very powerful tools for individuals who perhaps are not interested in the watch your breath, count your breath meditation and need a little support along their journey. But it gives their brain a chance to kind of reset from that hyper stimulus of the rest of their life and give them a chance to kind of pause and then come back into their life with that intention of their next steps. Mm-hmm. So being able to effectively detach from your current reality, observe your current reality, and then take steps to curate what you're, what you're letting into it. Well, sure. And I mean, obviously, what happens when you're in your reality is you are experiencing all of the things, all of the, that stimuli. And we know that when our brain is in a stressed out state, and it will be, that's, that's not... There's not a value associated with being in stress, right? There's good, even good stress. It just is what it is. But when you get to that hyper-stress environment, you start to lose the ability to access your higher thinking functions. So you're making less good decisions, less rational decisions. So if you can give yourself a minute to reset, um, I like the analogy of if your bicycle has a flat tire, you cannot fix that while the tire is spinning. You have to let it stop and then you can repair it. And I think that is very applicable to our lives as well. If something is going on and it's making us, you know, frazzled, then we have to pause to figure out what's really happening because it might seem like issue A is causing the problem. But once we've given it a second to simmer, we can see that it's something completely unrelated and we avoid additional trauma or additional stress by addressing it intentionally. Fantastic. Okay, so in terms of the, the, the most common issues that you find individuals suffering with, because you mentioned that you have some um, personal coaching clients, what are some of the, the issues that like, people suffer with as opposed to organizations? I think when I see clients, when they're talking about happiness, well, well whether they're talking about happiness coaching or not, when they say I'm unhappy, it comes down to a couple of, t- of very specific categories. One is this just the sense of I hate what I'm doing, <laughs> right? Um, so I think there's this interesting phenomenon of people who never learned to be autonomous, and that happens in lots of ways. And so they went to university or they chose a career based on somebody else, usually their parents' um, input, And they hate that. They hate that role. They hate that job. They hate where they find themselves. But they don't know how to stretch their wings and make those decisions for themselves. So we do. I do quite a bit of work with people on figuring out what they what they really want to do with their lives. It's almost what do you want to be when you grow up? Because congratulations, you have grown up. Uh, And it's this eye opening experience of oh, I can I can choose. (laughs) I have I have autonomy. And that sense, it's, it goes back to that concept about having um, results, right? If you, if you feel like you have the opportunity to influence those results, all of a sudden you have more control. You're no longer a victim of your circumstance. And that is an incredibly powerful moment when people have that epiphany of, I get to choose what my next step is going to be. Now, obviously with that choice comes the consequences and the responsibility for those. So if you quit your lucrative financial broker job to become an artist, you may have to give up the big house. But if it, if it feeds your soul, 
and it's truly what's going to bring you joy in your world, then maybe that's the right choice for you. You have to really understand what are your values. And I think that's the other thing we see quite a bit of in, in our coaching work is people have, again, internalized values that aren't theirs. They've just sort of been handed this bundle by their family or their culture and said, these are the things we hold sacred. They don't even bother to open the package and look at those things. They just say, yep, these are the things we hold sacred. And they chug along with their life, um, mouthing those words, but not understanding them, not connecting them to their reality. And so taking a minute again to go back and do some exercises around what do I really hold sacred in my world? What are the values that drive me as a human and how do I want to implement those? That that has been pretty profound for quite a few of my clients. They, they uh, there, well, there are some tears. I'll tell you that there are certainly some tears involved in that process, mm-hmm. but that's not a bad thing. No, I mean, tears are a sign that the emotions are starting to flow again. I mean, on a, on a more personal level, um, I found that anytime I've been in an emotional situation whereby I've ended up crying for whatever reason, after that point, the clarity that you're able to gain because it feels as though you're able to look at things not just from a, a rational perspective in a different way, but from an emotional perspective in a very different way as well. Yeah, 100%, right? Another thing, Ben, is the beauty of tears is we did evolve to cry. We have tear ducts, all of us. Uh, and part of what they do is that's a natural way to release cortisol. So you're diminishing the stress by crying. Now, I think that the um, the traditional cultural expectation that like boys don't cry has been incredibly damaging to us as a species uh, for lots of reasons. But one of them is we've just denied half the population the ability socially, in a socially acceptably anyway, to lower their stress in a way that's very functional. Mm. And if stress is really, uh, we know that burnout in a corporate environment is, is a growing problem. The World Health Organization has made that pretty apparent. Um, but burnout in our personal lives is also a challenge and we have to get our arms around that and find ways to deal with it. And if it takes a few tears, my gosh, go for it. Agreed. 100%. There's a, certainly that notion that boys don't cry. Um, and I think moving, moving past that is, is going to be something that will be incredibly powerful for an awful lot of people for an awful lot of people. Yeah. So, it's fun to watch generations change right, that. I think the, the, so my kids are all uh, over 18 now, hallelujah. And I see a huge shift in their generation's acceptance of emotional outbursts. Whereas my generation, that was still completely taboo. Even for women, women in the workplace, if you cry, that's a automatic goodbye to your career. But we don't, we're seeing that narrative changing and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so was that... The generational differences that you're experiencing, is that, um, are these changes, what, what is your perspective on these changes? Why do you think that they're happening? Why are, why is the younger generation a little bit more acceptable, more accepting of, um, emo- well, not necessarily emotional outbursts, but outward displays of emotion, as it were? Yeah, I think part of it is actually just the natural rejection of their parents' generation. I think that's part of it, right? Mom and dad don't do that, so we're for sure going to, and that's fine, and whatever works as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I also think that they've they've watched, right? They've seen their grandparents and parents' generation, and they're not interested in having heart attacks at 40, and they're not interested in committing suicide when their careers fall apart. And so they also are... Um, for all of the trash talk about the millennials and Gen Z, they are they are far more aware of the global holistic 
experience of people, you know, just writ large. And I think that they have the benefit of really understanding uh, beyond cultural pockets what what the benefit of these kinds of emotional experiences are. And so they can put the pieces together in ways that we just didn't have the luxury of when I was in my formative years. Mm-hmm. So which, what was the, the impetus for you to, to go down this, this journey, to take the first step on this journey? Um, because we mentioned before that you were at grad school, um, but you were not at grad school for the science of, <laughs> study of the science of happiness. No, I was in grad school for the study of management and leadership. And I just accidentally ran across a TED talk by Sean Aker called The Happiness Advantage. And it blew my hair back, Um, not just because of his focus on happiness as a legitimate experience, achievable legitimate experience, but also as a positive psychologist, he was throwing hard data at this issue. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face in in our culture is that people see happiness as this frou-frou, unmeasurable experience. And yes, there is no blood test for happiness. You can't do a cheek swab and see how chipper somebody is. But what we can measure are the tangential effects people who are self-identifying as being happier. And so Sean Aker's organization is certainly working hard on that, but positive psychology has really taken off as a legitimate school of thought. And so they're amassing enormous amounts of data around this concept of happiness, both in personal and uh, professional environments. And I think this is just so fascinating. So as somebody who has worked in the sciences now for, for a little while, I I love the ability to take data to leadership and say, look, I hear you when you say emotions are squishy, but there's some ROI behind this. Let's talk about turnover costs. Every organization tracks their turnover. Everybody can calculate the hard dollar amount or the hard money currency impact that has on their organization. If you can change that even by a little bit, you're saving your organization enormous amounts of money. And that's just turnover. That's not well-being costs, health insurance, um, absenteeism, intellectual property theft. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen because people are disengaged. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it's, only, it's only to the good for organizations to take a good, hard look at this topic and find ways to incorporate these practices into their normal flow of business. So kind of circling back to the, the intentions that you have taken on, um, why were you studying management and leadership? initially? Sure. That's a great question, Ben. So uh, actually, I found myself in my in the middle of my own personal life, uh, laid off in the middle of a recession. And so I had not gone to college. I actually I grew up on a small farm. I joined the, the Navy after high school. I married a Marine and had four children. And I never made it to college. I just didn't have time, right? I was going to get there someday. Um, and so along the way, I had a series of pretty significant life challenges that sort of planted the seeds for my positive practices on the individual level. Um, and so that was fine. Those practices stood me in good stead, right? I made it through, made it through some, pretty, <laughs> some pretty harrowing personal experiences and then um, kind of picked myself up by my bootstraps and then I found myself laid off. So I was in college because there were no jobs. Uh, 
the town that I lived in was actually defined by National Public Radio as the epicenter of the recession and nobody had a job. And so what else do you do, right? There were retraining opportunities available. And so I went to college. And so I breezed through an associate's degree and then an undergrad. And I found myself in graduate school and and the business track. Um, And I I believe that there is enormous applicability to this concept in business. And anybody who's ever had a job and been unhappy in that job can see some value in this. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned um, that you went through some some quite significant personal experiences. Would you be willing to share some of those? Sure, sure. So, uh, so the year I turned thirty was uh, the year from hell, frankly. Mm-hmm. So that year, I was um, I found myself a single parent because my children's father went to prison. And if anybody who's ever had a spouse convicted of a serious crime, that is not only emotionally and uh, financially devastating, but it's also socially incredibly isolating. So I found myself a single parent of children in crisis and zero support. Uh, Playdates evaporated, neighborhood barbecues didn't exist for me anymore. Um, People stopped talking to me because I was unclean, right? Uh, I was somehow wrapped up in this situation. And that that would have been bad enough, honestly. Uh, And I wish it had stopped there. But I made the mistake of saying, how much worse can it get? And the universe obliged. (laughs) So in that same year, um, I was diagnosed with cancer and had to deal with that health challenge. And I'm obviously gratefully made it through that process. My youngest daughter was two and she had to, she, her father had been in prison about two months when she was diagnosed with a massive infection in her skull and had to have emergency surgery. And again, I had nobody even watch my other kids, right? So I was juggling this, this insanity, waiting for that situation to resolve itself. Happily, she's, she's healthy and well today. Um, my car got repossessed because my breadwinner had gone to prison. My house flooded. Uh, my brother was in a car accident, which left him in a coma, for which he actually passed away from about five years later. And really, the icing on the whole thing, which it seems so absurd today to look back on it, but then I found a gray hair, right? And I remember thinking, that's it. This gray hair is the sign from the universe that I'm never going to be happy again. Obviously, I'm just destined to carry this misery around with me forever. Um, But what that tends, for me, what that looked like was uh, deep depression, deep depression, obviously. And I was managing the lack of sleep, which tends to go with depression, by drinking heavily so I could fall asleep at night and then consuming intense quantities of caffeine throughout the day to stay awake. And this was a a roller coaster ride straight to hell, frankly. Um, And so I was trying to find ways to manage this because I still had these four children who I had to somehow figure out how to get to adulthood. And I wasn't willing to like abandon them to the foster care system, which was really my only option at the time. That didn't seem like a viable parenting choice. So I tried a lot. I mean, the drinking was wasn't working. The caffeine consumption was probably going to kill me. And my grandmother said to me, you know, you just have to hang on. Things are going to get better. They always change. You have to figure out how to just get to the next day. And so what I stumbled upon was what I call my silver threads. Because people would say to me, well, just look for the silver lining. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I struggled to find a silver lining in having my spouse incarcerated or having cancer or any of these things. Like there was no silver lining. 
I got to the point where I wanted to throw something at people when they would say that to me. It just felt so insensitive. But what I did find was it didn't have to be an epiphany or a life-altering transformation. It could be something little, just one or two things to be grateful for every day. And there's always something, right? Now, to be fair, a couple of times it was, oh my gosh, nobody vomited on me today. Yes, <laughs> that's a good day. <laughs> you know, we had, we had a stomach flu and that was, that was the best I had, but it was something to hang on to because what it did was took my brain off of that hamster wheel of negativity. My amygdala was certainly on overload. I didn't realize it at the time. That's for sure what was happening, but it let me take that train of thought and redirect it, intentionally redirect it. And so I started the practice of looking for one silver thread every day. And if you write them down, then you get to go back and look at them on those days when things are just ugly, you know, like when the, when the house flooded, I was like, oh, this, this is awful. This is awful. <laughs> but at least I know that this will pass, you know, this will pass and there will be happy moments again in the future because look at this huge stack I have of positive experiences that I've captured that have happened to me, not to you or some random stranger, but I personally experienced this good. I know it can happen again. And so that's really where the personal practices of really looking for positive experiences in small doses. I think if you're looking for the peak experiences, right, we tend to pin our hope on happiness on those peak experiences. Life will be great when I finish university or find a partner or get that promotion or whatever. And yes, for a moment, life will be great. And then that will settle down back into your new normal. Mm-hmm. And we also, we don't get to have peak, peak experiences every day. Like if you win the lottery every day, it'll be fun for a while and then it'll just be your normal and it won't be fun anymore. But finding a four leaf clover is still a little, oh, that's nice. You know, or a, a kiss from a, from your niece. That's, that's nice. Um, oh, they have pistachio muffins at the bakery. Yay, I win. You know, it's not, they're not life-changing, but they are little tiny bits of positivity to nudge you back into that mindset. Yeah, I, I, as you say, like our brains are, our brains are wired for fear, our brains are wired to look for danger, and it is why we've survived. So this Circling again quite nicely back to intentionality, um, looking for, not, no, and not in that kind of cliche way of, oh, like, you need to look for the positive. There's always a positive something somewhere in there. It's like, there is something to that. Not in the way that it's like, oh, like, there's always a silver lining, as you were saying. Like, thank you very much for sharing those experiences. But as you said, there's not necessarily going to be a silver lining with some things. Um, but looking for the positive in other things, not necessarily in the experience that you were going through, but actively practicing gratitude for, as you say, pistachios or whatever it is that you're looking for. I'm not even happening quite a bit. Yeah. It's happening now. So I'm seeing an enormous, uh, uprising of people on social media saying things like, I would not have I wouldn't have chosen to live through a global pandemic. I would never choose that experience. However, I am finding that I have more time with my kids and I cherish that time. Or I have time to work on my hobbies, or I have a chance to appreciate those relationships with my coworkers that let me get my job done because this highlights where those strong connections actually are. 
Or even if it's, wow, this is a difficult situation. What can I find to make the best of it? I'm seeing that happen too. And that's a really powerful tool to say, okay, this horrible experience or difficult or unpleasant experience has happened to me. What can I learn from it? And it doesn't mean learn a foreign language or any of that. Like, um, like there's a term for that called toxic positivity. And I think that's a, I hate the term because I don't think positivity can be toxic, but pseudo positivity or like the Stepford wife syndrome absolutely can be really dangerous because those negative emotions exist for a reason. We, those are our natural warning system. We should never try to lobotomize those. And I heard you say in an earlier podcast episode, something about um, you took a antidepressant and it sort of flatlined your emotions. Yeah. And I, yes, uh, lots of people, I've had that experience myself, and people stop taking their medication because they're like, this is not the life I choose to live, right? And that's when people say, you should just be a Pollyanna or have a happy attitude all the time. That's really trying to do the same thing. It's trying to prune out all of those emotions that are so powerful in our world. No, keep them, honor them, appreciate them, let them do their job, but don't let them take over. It's like... um. To get back to the conversation about the microbiome in your intestines, right? Beneficial bacteria are beneficial. If you let the yucky stuff in and take over, then you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the, the amygdala hijack as well. Um, if you're focusing on the negative emotions, then you're going to end up in this perpetual cycle. Is that is my understanding of that correct? Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. You're hypersensitized and you, you dr- jump right back into it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like the um, <laughs> the term toxic positivity as well. It's uh, I think one there's one meme that I've seen going round and round in regard to this in regard to this the pandemic situation is like if you go into social isolation or quarantine and you don't come out with like a language a new skill or a side hustle stuff or something like that you never lack time you never you just lack discipline. It's like I mean. Uh. I understand the kind of the impetus behind putting something together like that, but then equally is like, no, it's, this is an incredibly novel situation, which you have never experienced before. And thusly it's going to be a learning experience. So give yourself a bit of a break. Yeah. What a, what an example of privilege, right? Yeah. Oh, to have a situation where <laughs> your, your biggest challenge is you can't get your, your, your fancy coffee. Oh, you poor thing. And to be fair, now to be fair, I work with a lot of people who have led pretty privileged lives, right? And so this is their first trauma rodeo. <laughs> and I appreciate that. And so having to come to terms with all of this is overwhelming for them. And so for those of us, for this is just another example of things going astray, uh, cool. I'm grateful that I can be that bastion of relative calm in the storm, but I have to recognize that not everybody has that luxury. And who would think that having previous trauma experiences is a luxury, right? But it really is. It gave me a skill set and a toolbox to draw on in this time. And Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Trauma is a a very powerful tool for developing self-awareness and self-awareness um at least from for me from a from a more personal standpoint has been very important in terms of me identifying what my values are and what the values are that i've taken on what i've been told that i should value and i think without emotional trauma again speaking personally i don't think i would have been able to develop the level of self-awareness that I feel lucky to have now, especially as, as you say, in times like this. Uh, 
we don't change unless we're uncomfortable typically, right? I mean, as organisms, as humans, we don't typically go, you know, it'll be fun. I'm going to go ahead and review all of my preconceived notions about life and throw them into this hopper and see what comes out. Of course not. That's a difficult process and it doesn't make sense to actively engage in that unless you're some kind of emotional masochist. So I think that, but again, I don't think that you have to, every trauma doesn't have to lead to transformative paradigm shifts either, right? And that's that's back to that meme, which is just uh, well-intentioned, but perhaps poorly messaged. Yeah. So this then feeds quite nicely, I think, into um, resilience. Absolutely. Resilience. Um, one of my previous podcast guests, a guy called Aban, is also involved in the, the science of happiness and applying it to um, corporate clients here in China. Mm, awesome. And resilience is one of the things, resilience and connection, funnily enough, resilience, connection, and engagement are three of the things that he, he talks about a lot as well. Resilience for you. What is it? How would you define personally? it? Mm-hmm. On a personal uh, personally, level, I be- um, on a from a like from a your personal business standpoint. Okay, so for me as an individual, I believe that resilience is having the the knowledge and the tools to to approach an unknown situation and navigate it and come out the other side marginally intact. Right? Um, you you never know what you're facing, like. Unless you've been in quarantine, you have no idea how you're going to react to that. But I have this baseline expectation that I have this skill set to navigate it with some sense of ability. And I think that plays out also in my in my business. So corporations will face these kinds of events. Um, nobody wants to have a black swan event. Nobody wants to have a lawsuit. Nobody wants to have a radical market shift. Nobody wants to have an earthquake that damages their manufacturing facility but something will come up that causes radical stress. And so resilience in a corporate environment, I think has two prongs. One is accepting the fact that these stressors of all sizes and shapes will occur and honoring that and having a plan in place to deal with like the daily stuff. Um, Maybe the mail got misplaced or Jim and Tom have a personality conflict, like managing that kind of normal daily stress. But then having, a, I believe having a stress management plan in place is actually an incredibly powerful practice. So most companies have natural disaster response plans. They do fire drills. They may have earthquake drills. Um, we have shelter in place opportunities in today's world, right? And we do that because when we hit these stressful situations, uh, have you ever been in a, in a building where there's a fire? Have you ever had that, um, that I opportunity? Have I have not. <laughs> I have. I have, and it's super scary. Um, but luckily, we all we jump back into that experience of being grade schoolers filing out into the into the parking lot or whatever. So the same thing is true for stress management. We can approach it in the very same way. So you can ha- not that you want to induce stress to practice how you're going to respond to it, but to have a management plan around it. So. While you cannot say, we will address lawsuits like this, I don't think it matters necessarily what the source of the stress is. What matters is that it will happen. It will limit your ability as an organization to make knee-jerk good decisions. You have to intentionally plan for that to have mechanisms to calm the organization down and manage sometimes thousands of moving parts, right? I mean, large corporations have thousands of employees oftentimes scattered across the globe. So how are you going to manage that? Do you have a communication plan in place? Do you have resources on hand? Do you have, um, are, 
I hear companies say things like, we're going to let our managers handle that. So are your managers trained in stress management? Probably not. (laughs) And that's okay. They're not there to be, um, they're not not necessarily part of their job description, but then somebody better be on top of that. You know, your, your managers probably also aren't firemen, but somebody knows how to contact the fire department to get the experts on board. And so I think resilience is wrapped around the concept of having that toolkit available and people have to be prepared to use it. So you can't just say, we're going to have these job aids on how to deal with stress tucked away in some missing file cabinet in our learning management system. If you haven't talked about it and you haven't had the honest conversations about what's appropriate for your space, and it has to be appropriate for your space. Um, Because so much of those stressors are impacted by things like local expectations. We're back to expectations. Uh, If culturally people expect to have bank holidays off and now they have to work on the bank holiday because of whatever, that's a different conversation. Like we're used to working on Saturdays in America. That's just normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But my European colleagues are like, no, not so much. It's not going to not going to fly. So being aware of the nuances of what your organization needs and having that as part of your conversation when you're mapping out how you're going to react in these high stress situations. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing companies now, I think they're recognizing that they didn't have appropriate, um, in many cases, didn't have appropriate mechanisms in place to manage stress of this magnitude. Mm -hmm. And I mean, okay, it is what it is. Uh, So what are you going to do for the next time? Oh, one, hope that there isn't a next time, but then two, put the standard operating procedures, SOPs in place to help alleviate the situation if it were to arise again, if we were to have a second black swan. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. I mean, we, we, people oftentimes say, oh, thank goodness we survived that, right? It's, it reminds me of when I was a kid. Um, so I'm, I'm of the generation where chicken pox was still a thing. And when somebody got chicken pox, everybody brought their children over to yeah. infect them on purpose, right? <laughs> and then... And that was it for that generation. Nobody else was going to get chicken pox. And that's that's yeah. cool. But that's, I mean, in corporations, that's not how it works. You're going to have a situation and then something else will happen because life exists and corporate life changes really. Um, I think any company that's not ready to accept change as a normal part of business is doing themselves a huge disservice mm-hmm. and wasting money. I mean, personally, personally, Sarah doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of interest in growing the profit margin for an organization. I'm more interested personally in the well-being of people with whom I interact on this planet. But the truth is that their well-being will impact the profit margins. And so because that is a consideration for corporations, they they really have to get their arms around these concepts. Because what's happening now, they're treating people like disposable commodities. And every company that I know says, our people are our biggest asset. Well, yeah, they are. They're a huge investment and you're, you're not providing proper maintenance on them. You, know? yeah. you treat your fleet of vehicles quite well. You maintain your equipment quite well. But you're grinding your people down to a nub. And then you're wasting all of that money retraining replacements when they walk out the door. That yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, this um, squeezing the, the maximum amount out of the individual. Um, I think here especially, um, in China, the, the, we're now at a stage whereby the workforce is kind of starting to mature and there's a movement from a, a manufacturing economy to a more service-based economy. 
And perhaps unsurprisingly, up until this point, employee well-being hasn't really been all that much of a consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is certainly a, a, tra- a palpable transition here um, whereby retention is becoming more of a consideration than it doesn't matter because there are X number of people who could slot into this unskilled job. So it's, it's, it's fantastic to see that there is this transition is happening everywhere because at the end of the day, we spend the overwhelming majority of our time at work. And if we are being ground down as opposed to empowered, then it's not going to be a particularly pleasant experience for anyone involved. <laughs> it's not. And I like your metaphor of squeezing the juice, right? So that's a, that's, I, I see that kind of thrown into conversations regularly. And okay, let's talk about that. If mm-hmm. you want more productivity out of your people, you want them to provide more widgets, whatever that widget is, then give them the tools to produce more widgets and they'll perform a lot longer. You know, um, if you, you have to, you have to, you have to think about the long-term outcome of these conversations with your people. So yes, you might be able to stand over them like with the old sailing ships with the whip and a drum and get them to paddle a little faster for the next hour. But what if you could get them to paddle 10% faster for the next 10 years? Do that math. And it's astonishing. And I think part of this is the maturity of the, of the organizations, right? Because when you're in that mindset of just looking to the next reporting period, and unfortunately, too many of them are, like the, whatever, the next quarter or the next earnings call, yeah. that number has to be good. And to hell with the, the outcome, we'll figure out the future when it happens. Well, that's a reactionary approach. And yeah. that's doable, but it's not, not, it's not best sustainable. Mm-hmm. So... You, you do your, again, I'm back to doing yourselves a favor. Like companies do themselves a favor by treating their people with ways that respect their dignity. And if they want to see any kind of innovation or creativity, you've got to create a space that allows that to happen. Mm-hmm. And that juicer environment doesn't allow for creativity or innovation. It just, people come to work, they leave and they take their best ideas with them out the door. Yeah. Proactivity versus reactivity. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. What about on an individual level um, from a resilience standpoint? So these are these are ways that um, organizations can generate resilience or create resilience within it from a from a structural standpoint. But on a more individual level, what would be some some practices people could engage in that would help them kind of become more resilient? Would it be a case of kind of longer term um, exposure to these stressful stimuli? Would that be something that could be useful? Or what What would be some things that people can engage in? I mean, I suppose in some ways it could be. And I think that's how kind of how the military functions, right? They uh, they intentionally stress people out to build that stress muscle response. Um, and that, that's functional. It depends on you, what, you're, what you do, I suppose, for a living. But generally speaking, I think that people tend to build personal resilience through mindfulness practices. I think that's a brilliant one because it does allow them to slow down that hamster wheel and make better rational choices about their career, their life everything. Um, And that can look like meditations. It might be yoga. It might be uh, intentional breathing practices. Getting fresh air 
is actually incredibly beneficial for resilience. Uh, having good physical health does tend to lend itself to the rest of your experience, your mental, physical, emotional, um, and whatever your spiritual practices are. Those should really all be well-maintained. Uh, it's the wheel, right? You have to maintain all sections of your wheel to have a smooth ride through life. I think also in, in, engaging in personal and professional development because that gives you hope that there's something else for you. Now, some some companies like to think that everybody should eventually become a manager and not everybody wants to be a manager. They don't want that hassle, whatever. It's just not, not their happy space. But even if you're going to be widget manufacturer extraordinaire, you can still learn new ways to do that. Or if your professional skill set has somehow magically capped out, I don't know how that happens, um, but you can do personal development as well. So you can pick up new experiences. Maybe you do learn a new language, but it has to be something that's authentic to you. So I guess, I think you go back to your values. What are the things that are important to me? And what are the, my priorities in life? And then build your personal and professional development plans around that. Because if you don't, then you're back to being in, in that friction state and you're going to be unhappy and you're going to learn less because you're miserable you're going to regret the decisions you made and you're going to be less likely to try new things in the future, which just is a downward trend unto itself. Mm-hmm. But also having strong relationships with other people. And it, the truth is it doesn't necessarily have to be other people. We know that there is an incredibly strong human animal bond. And so having a pet or even going and volunteering at a shelter and walking a dog can be a very rewarding activity that can help build your own personal resilience because it's decreasing your stress level. It's good for the dog too. So that's a a (laughs) win-win. And I I think honestly, there's an enormous amount of value. Like you talked about earlier in today's world with a 24 seven news cycle and Facebook and Twitter notifications going off all the time, unplug, give yourself a 30 minute social media vacation once a day, like turn your phone off when you take a shower, turn it off and give yourself that, that moment of peace where you're not having to respond to this instantaneous messaging expectation. Also, you can engage in things like random acts of kindness, right? And the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation has an incredible amount of resources out there. I encourage people to check them out if they have, if they don't know what to do and they want to do something nice. Um, but doing good things for other people actually triggers your pleasure center in your brain too. So you win, the recipient wins, everybody's happier. It's a net win for the universe. Mm-hmm. There's actually there's actually some interesting data around things like, um, so we joke about cat videos on the internet, right? That's a common trope. Yeah. But there was a study that came out of Japan that said that looking at pictures of baby animals for 30 seconds could increase your mood. That sounds like a fantastic use of time. I mean, if you're on the train anyway, why not, right? And given the choice between um, <laughs> a global pandemic update and looking at cat videos and pictures, I, I'm 100% sure which one of those <laughs> I would choose. <laughs> I mean, you're going to get the pandemic news from the guy next to you anyway. So you might as well watch the cat video and have a little fun in your life. Exactly. Bit of intentionality. Make sure that you're not looking at it and see just kind of happening to you. (laughs) So you mentioned um, values there. Um, So how would one go about deciphering what their personal values are versus what their cultural values are? How would they figure out what's important to them versus what they've told should be important? Well, I think you can Google about 80 zillion different values assessments. They exist on the internet for free. Uh, You can pay somebody like me to come and hold a workshop for you. I'm I'm down for that. But honestly, you can also just 
sit down with a list of values and have a conversation with yourself and say, okay, let me read this list. And there, there are like, you know, 500 common values out there to choose from. So give yourself that list and sit there and actually spend the time, like invest in yourself. That's, it's a form of self-care, right? It's not all pedicures and massages. Figuring out your values is also a very powerful way to engage in self-care. So look at that list of, of value statements and think about which ones actually resonate with you and which ones feel a little hollow. And it might take a little, a little digging because we are heavily programmed and like, I mean, I'm well past my 20s, right? So I've had a lot of experiences that have layered on the barnacles of expectation. But you still have that deep down gut sense of, you know, I don't necessarily care about being a millionaire. That's not a value of my pers- mine personally. Personal development is high on my list. It's I want to continuously evolve to be the next best version of myself. So that's one of mine. But not everybody does. And so you have to really think about that. And it's okay to to sit on it. You don't have, it's not a, um, you have more than five minutes to do this practice. So grab yourself a list, grab a, a beverage of your choice and sit down with it and think it over and circle the ones that feel good to you and then put it away and come back to it a couple of days later and look at it again because your mood will have changed. You might have slept once or twice um, or you'll just have thought about it and your subconscious will have churned through those thoughts and kind of percolated to the top the ones that actually fit you. And it's perfectly possible. Uh, I've seen it happen twice with coaching clients that they, we did this, um, my cultural expectations and my family expects me to do this list of stuff. And they went through the exercise and they, they came on the other side and said, you know, I, I aligned to that list. I really do believe that. Okay. But now it's yours. You have personalized that process. You own that and you own the opportunity to take it to the next level, which is putting it into practice because values on a wall are pointless. Mm-hmm. But values that you can put into action are invaluable, pardon the pun. <laughs> Solid segue there. I appreciate that. <laughs> so in terms of parking one's own bias when going through this exercise, so if you're you're presented with a list of a list of words, a list of terms that will probably have some degree of cultural connotation, social connotation, how would you disconnect from that or at least be mindful of it so that you're picking things that are important to you because they're important to you not because you identify as say let's say an entrepreneur Um, because you identify yourself as an entrepreneur you feel as though you should appreciate these things so what I tell people to do is start with the these things first. So take those cultural identifiers, whatever they are, and you, we all belong to multiple subcultures, right? So I am I am Polish American, right? That's one culture. I am a parent. I am a veteran. I am a businesswoman. I am a survivor of a childhood abuse. Like I have all these cultures that I belong to, and they all come with expectations. So take those labels and put them down on paper and say, like stereotypically, what do I expect out of these groups? So I expect veterans to be strong and brave and and have integrity. They don't all, but that's the expectation, right? Um, And so you can have that list. And it's okay. I don't think bias is bad, honestly. I think bias just is. 
Um, but being aware of it is super powerful. So when you have that list of almost stereotypical attributes for those categories that you identify with, those, those aspects of your personal archetype, then you can say, okay, and then and I would, again, I would put it away for a couple of days because otherwise you're already enmeshed in that bias. You can't separate it out. So it's a multi-phase process. So you grab your notebook, you write it down, or you put it on your OneNote or whatever technology you use. And then you come back to it and say, okay, so I, I believe that these are things that are important to me. And then compare the lists. But it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be influenced by your culture, whatever that culture happens to be. I mean, cultural identity is very powerful and it's actually very healthy as long as it's something that you actually feel comfortable with. But I mean, for example, uh, to take a a pretty extreme one. We see things like female genital mutilation, right? That's a cultural expectation. Now, I heavily struggle with that as a norm. That's okay. Like I would not, I would not value that <laughs> at yeah. all. Um, and and but I'm not also. I'm going to struggle with with saying that nobody should, but they should tease out why. So okay, I see this that this thing has value, but why do I feel that way? So ask those questions. Um, so as a business major for a long time now, I find some of the business tools are really helpful for this. There's a practice called the five whys. And it kind of reminds me of working with a two-year-old, but basically you say a statement. So I believe this is important. Why do you feel that way? And then you think about that and write the answer down. And you do that, that same, you drill down five times, at least five times. And usually by the fifth time, you've gotten to the root of why you actually believe that statement. And that can be a really useful tool to get past some of that um, cultural narrative that feeds into the bias. You know, we have that, those talking points that are handed to us by our faith leaders or our family elders or politicians or whatever that, that we tend to mimic back as we don't even think about it, you know. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does that even mean? Who knows, right? Nobody has a real good answer for that, but they can say those words, but dig in, dig in and do the work. It's worth it. Mm -hmm. Kind of peeling back those layers of expectation, like asking yourself why you believe those things, but why do you believe those things? No, no, yeah. why do you believe those things? <laughs> <Sorry>. Keep going. <laughs> Keep digging until you, until you hit the spot. So we're starting to bump up against the, the hour now. Um, so I think that's, that's quite a fitting place to finish. One question then that I like to, to ask all of my guests is, um, the purpose of this podcast is to, to dig into, um, mental health and issues surrounding anxiety and depression. Um, so one thing I like to ask everybody is if there is someone who is listening to this podcast right now and they find themselves in a particularly tough spot, so maybe they're feeling particularly depressed maybe they're anxious maybe they're just maybe they're just having an absolutely terrible time what would be one thing that they could do right now that would help them move through that one incredibly powerful activity that i recommend to anybody dealing with life um, especially mental mental challenges mental, mental wellness challenges is gratitude gratitude practices are and you i'm sure you've heard this before you will hear it again but you can sit down and say, what, do I, what am I grateful for right now? And then take it one step further and tell somebody. And you don't have to even tell an actual human being. Put it on your social media. I am grateful for 
the fact that I saw snowflakes today. Like it doesn't matter. But the act of retelling the thing that you're grateful for lets you experience it twice because you got it the first time, you've just relived it, you just squeezed more juice out of that positive experience. And that's that's awesome. Fantastic. Perfect. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. This has been a, a brilliant conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your personal experiences and your, your professional insight as well. Much appreciated. I appreciate the opportunity, Ben. This has been a really wonderful opportunity. Grand. Thank you very much indeed. And thank, thank you everyone you. else for listening. That was Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.